Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, February 2nd, we are studying Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Now on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is confronted by a demon, another opportunity for him to show himself the stronger man over the old evil foe. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sam Wergau. Pastor Wergau serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Oh, always good to be with you. Let's talk context, Pastor Wergau. Yesterday, uh, Pastor Peter Ill helped us see that the text right before this starts a string of miracles of Jesus. What do we need to know about the context as we get into this very detailed text that Mark's going to give us today? Yeah, well, it's going to be feel um, a little bit, almost a little repetitious because we've already had a healing of an unclean spirit for sure. Uh, I think this text definitely is unique in itself and, and very much important to to study it on its own. But we see it its relationship to to the whole. I think it depends on how far you want to zoom uh, on the context. I think kind of all these miracles where we have seen and teaching we have seen uh, previous in Mark's gospel as well as what we're starting here, and I think we do see a little bit of a transition here, and what we're going to be seeing kind of play out for the next few um, uh, uh, chapters is, of course, the whole of Jesus' uh, earthly ministry, but in particular, kind of what's thematic for all of that, what kind of sets the stage uh, is is when uh, Jesus goes about beginning his ministry, uh, and, and this is recorded in, in Mark 1, uh, verses 15. Verse 15, uh, he says, uh, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now that's, I mean, if you read the gospels, that's so often mentioned, but putting it in the context then of what we're dealing with, what we've seen Jesus doing and what we're seeing him doing in, in, in the text today is, is the inbreaking of this kingdom of God. And I think we especially see it when we see that kingdom of God, that reign of God, uh, coming into to conflict with uh, the kingdom of the of the unclean, uh, the kingdom of Satan, uh, and, and this uh, interaction, this conflict, this confrontation with the unclean spirit definitely definitely uh, shows that. And then we see how. Um, Christ triumphs, his kingdom triumphs over this and how it goes about and does it, uh, how these two, the kingdom of the unclean spirit, the unclean spirit and the reign of Christ uh, interact with one another, how they're contrasted to one another. But ultimately, what Christ does in the midst of this uh, to bring his kingdom, his righteous uh, reign into um, this sin, sick, demon possessed world. Uh, demon-possessed world. I think we're already seeing it with, with his teaching for sure, but even just previous, as you mentioned, the, the, the sea, uh, we, we see it as Christ uh, uh, conquers uh, over, over that chaos by his word uh, on the sea, and I think the sea is going to be related to what we're talking about here too as well. 
That's another important bit of context is just the fact that Jesus has just crossed the sea. What does that mean when Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee? Where is he Where is he headed? Where has he gone? And why is that important? Yeah, I think there's a couple ways we can look at the sea here. Uh, let's stick with the first one uh, to start with, at least. And um, that is geographically. This, this is really important to understand. Now, if you have your uh, you know, if you have your Bible, you can open up. Most Bibles have the little maps in the front or in the back. Uh, and, and the Sea of Galilee really kind of serves as the focal point of what we're going to be talking about here because we're going to contrast it. So, so we've seen previous in the previous chapters with Jesus' miracles and his teaching, uh, not only in this spot, but um, Jesus is primarily working out of Capernaum. That's kind of his home base for his Galilean ministry. Now, uh, that's going to be Capernaum's kind of on the far northwest uh, uh, and Bethsaida's kind of a little bit next to it. Um, anyways, uh, that's um, primarily where Jesus has been operating out of. And, and you'll see kind of his, his context that he's been dealing with. Uh, the people that he's been uh, uh, ministering to and reaching have been uh, people of the house of Israel, right? The Israelites. Uh, uh, I think this is neat to see because what you see is when we compare the unclean spirit here in our text and the unclean spirit that we were acquainted with already and saw the episode with in, in uh, Mark 1, which uh, just a little note, because uh, this is uh, February 2nd, last Sunday, if you're on the three-year lectionary, this was actually the gospel text. So you're very familiar with that episode of that demon, perhaps that unclean spirit and the cleansing of that that took place in the synagogue right? The Jewish house of worship. Uh, now we have Jesus traveling and we have the episode on the sea, right? Uh, and, and then we have after that episode on the sea, where is Jesus end up? And of course, we're told uh, in five one, which we'll get to here in just a second, it's the country of the Gerasenes. Uh, it, it's the, uh, uh, he's by the Decapolis. This is Gentile territory, Greek territory. Decapolis is a Greek word, right? So we're seeing Jesus kind of stepping away uh, uh, for a time, and, and, and this movement of Jesus' ministry from the Jews to, to the Gentiles, uh, because both, both the Jews and the Gentiles are uh, both, A, uh, part of this inbreak, or uh, A, I should say, first of all, uh, under the reign of a sinful fallen world, under the reign of the devil and unclean spirits and, and, and all of that, but also this inbreaking of the kingdom of God is coming both to Jew and to Gentile as Christ, as the kingdom of God comes to them. That's a, that's a fantastic thing to point out, that when Jesus first, I mean, that's really the first public thing that Jesus does in Mark, is that he goes to the synagogue, he teaches, and he casts out a demon. So he does that in a synagogue, in this Jewish setting. There's probably not a more Jewish setting Jesus could have chosen to cast out a demon than in a synagogue. And now, the first time he goes into Gentile territory, what does he do? He casts out a demon again. And so Jew and Gentile alike, they both share the same malady, the same problem. They are both under the rule and authority of the devil. They need rescue from this foe. And they both share the same Savior. It is the same Jesus who has come to rescue Jew and Gentile alike from the devil and his demons to cast out the stronger man to plunder his goods. Well, I know we'll bring in that imagery from chapter three as well as we get talking today. But it's just, a, I think that's a fantastic thing. He, he's done this in the Jewish synagogue and now he's doing it in the, it's not a synagogue, but the, I mean, the Gentile synagogue, if you will, to, to borrow the language. 
he's going to do the same thing. He's come to rescue sinners from the devil. And that's that's so fantastic to see that. So I think let's go ahead and, and read the text, Pastor Wargal. There's a lot to talk about here, and I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to explore some of these ideas as we get going. So Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. I'm going to stop there. We'll, we'll take this in, in scenes. This is one of those texts, Pastor Wargal, that has always struck me, particularly in the Gospel of Mark. We were joking before we started recording that you were blessed to get a longer section of text than some of our other guests have. Mark, as we've said many times, likes to just race through stories. You know, he will get straight to the point. He'll give you just what you need to know. In this text, he really loads on the details, particularly here, as he describes this demon-possessed man. So we've already we've already kind of talked about this Gerasenes, Jesus in, in Gentile territory. Pick up anything that we missed there, of course, but then take us into this picture that Mark begins to paint of the person that meets Jesus when he gets out of the boat. Yeah, the details here are just uh, uh, phenomenal, excellent, and that's a great point that you make. We often we often think of Mark as succinct, right, and getting to the point. But there are certain times when Mark really digs in and is very, very specific about things. Now we can, of course, you know, kind of maybe postulate or assume why he does that. Uh, another instance is where he spends a lot of time before the triumphal entry. I know that's a little ways ahead, but uh, detailing the donkey and detailing the acquisition of the donkey, just just as a point. So you keep that in mind uh, when we come to that text eventually. But yeah, here. So I think that painting this image is really, really neat to see uh, that we we get this um, a really good picture of who this uh, man possessed by an unclean spirit is, uh, what his condition is, which we'll then be able to contrast here in just a, a little bit towards the end of this account uh, before and the after. Uh, and, and specifically, Again, I kind of mentioned at the beginning how this contrasts with with Christ and his and his kingdom, uh, what the unclean spirit is causing for this man or doing to this man, and 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 then we'll see it in the dialogue here in just a little bit as well. Uh, but also then um, what Christ comes to do to rescue uh, uh, from this this reign of Satan, this reign of evil, uh, and so yeah. Mark in typical Mark in fashion says that this takes place immediately right after uh, Jesus uh, departure from the boat. So, so we're probably near the, and we'll see here uh, the, the sea will come up again. We're near the sea. Um, uh, and that this is um, where um, uh, our Lord encounters uh, this, this demon possessed man. Uh, so again, like a lot of details, we have the tombs mentioned uh, that he lives among, among, 
tombs among among the dead, uh, and that um, uh, which is you know you wouldn't have people dwelling in those kind of uh, places on normal circumstances, and that you have uh, this idea of the supernatural strength, which I re- think really does stand out. And and you've made a couple connections with that, which good as I want to as well with the strong man in in verse three. So we'll, we'll draw that a little bit more here. Uh, but then also this verbal and physical violence. I think that's really interesting because you do have that at least the verbal in the synagogue uh account with the the, the unclean spirit of the unclean uh, uh the man with the unclean spirit because he enters the synagogue and starts distracting from what jesus is doing right he comes in uh screaming or crying out uh in order that our Lord can't do what he had come to do. That is to proclaim the gospel, to, to teach uh, uh, the unclean spirits getting in the way. Uh, so this idea of verbal, physical violence and the cutting, uh, cutting himself with stones and crying out is significant as well. But yeah, let's focus a little bit on that, on that stronger man, uh, the strong man. Uh, and just, just kind of reference that and to remember what we're kind of dealing with there. That's uh, three, uh, be, well, Let's see, where do we want to begin with that one? It's uh, Mark 3.27, is that correct? Um, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. it's part of a larger conversation, just yeah. to refresh our memories. Yeah. Jesus has been confronted by a variety of opinions about him, and one of those opinions about him comes from the scribes, who are saying that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul, he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. And so Jesus quickly puts an end to that. Uh, you know, he makes the very simple point why would Satan be casting out Satan? And that's clearly not what's happening is what Jesus is saying there. And in order to illustrate what's happening, he starts talking about a strong man. So I'll I'll just, I'll read these verses and let you comment on them again and and make the connection to chapter Mm -hmm. five. So this is Mark three. Oh, let's, let's get a running start into it. Verse 26. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So how does that fit in with Mark 5? Well, I think it fits in with the whole uh, of what Jesus is doing with this breaking in of the kingdom of God. Um, uh, we This is really interesting because I think we... We, we rightly understand that in the face of um, God... Satan is is powerless, right? It's not this dualistic thing like who's going to win the win the fight over humanity or the world. Christ has conquered, but we can go a little bit too far the wrong way on that to think that somehow uh, Satan is powerless, right? Uh, that there is that there is no danger or strength in the work of 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 the devil, uh, because our Lord describes him as. A strong man, right? And obviously, we see that <laughs> reflected very much in, uh, in in this account of the exorcisms that are taking place. These demons have power. The strong man, Satan himself, has power. You know, as a uh, uh, Peter talks about him as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, uh, which we do well to know, so that we can resist him not on our own strength, but on. On the, uh, through the strength of Christ and his gospel and the forgiveness of sins, those things which God, who is the stronger man, promises to, to, to uh, 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 give to us by which we then are more than conquerors. Uh, uh, but what you have here then is very clearly laid out that, that, that this isn't, um, that this is a, the, that this is our Lord is the, the stronger man. 
Um, and um, he's the one that's going to, because it takes the stronger man to bind the strong man uh, so that he can plunder his house. So again, two different imageries, I guess, here, but we can see how they're closely related with the kingdom of, of, of Satan uh, and, and the kingdom of God. But then you also have those in the kingdom of Satan, all of us by nature, by, you know, uh, uh, because of our sin, uh, uh, belong to the house of, 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 of the devil until such time as Christ, who has bound that strong man, plunders his house and rescues us, redeems us and takes us from that. Uh, and then to himself, to his kingdom, uh, through by, by faith, through his word of the gospel. Right. I, I mean, as, you, as you're talking there and concerning the power that the devil does, in fact, have uh, several thoughts were going through my mind. Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, mm. was running through my mind where, where he talks about the old evil foe now means deadly woe, deep guile and great might are his dread arms in fight. On earth is not his equal with might of ours cannot be done. Soon were our loss affected. That That's where we stand in relation to to this strong man who is Satan. And even as you were talking as well, and I know it's not quite the same image, but in Genesis chapter three, where the serpent gets, gets introduced mm-hmm. there, he's more clever. And, mm-hmm. and as it is, he proves to be more clever than Adam and Eve. He ends up the stronger one between, between him and Adam and Eve. The promise in Genesis 3.15 is that an even stronger one than this strong man is coming. That's the imagery that Jesus has picked up. And and in Mark 5, we're seeing it you know, really in flesh. You have this man who has been taken captive by this unclean spirit. So you've got the strong man who has some goods that he's stolen. And here comes the stronger man, Jesus to set him free, to bind that strong man who has been portrayed with great strength, as we've seen here in these opening verses. Mm -hmm. Jesus is going to come and bind that strong man to plunder his goods, to set free this child of God. And and that's where this text is headed. But it is, it's such a, it's such a vivid image that Mark gives us here in these opening verses. You you mentioned the tombs as well being a part of this. Mm -hmm. I mean, here you have the life of the world, the one who's created all life, you know, that was gen- the previous text in Mark chapter four, where Jesus has showed himself to be the creator of all things here in the flesh. Now he sets foot and, and what is he confronted with? He's confronted with death. I mean, it's just the, the picture of, of light and dark of life and death of, of strength versus stronger strength. It, it's just oh, so captivating the way Mark sets the scene. Yeah, exactly, and 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 clean and unclean. I think that's another yeah, yeah. another important thing that that um, we do well to yeah, see. That tell tell us more about that one because it Mark again. We noted this in chapter one, and it comes up again here. We've been talking about demons, the devil, but Mark is a little more specific in calling these unclean spirits. Why is that important? Well, unclean and clean language, of course, is very uh, significant to the Old Testament uh, ceremonial law. Uh, we're going to see it come up here with the pigs, right? Uh, what could be uh, what could be eaten clean? and unclean food, but as well as um, uh, even with the ceremonial laws, uh, uh, how one was clean or unclean. Uh, so this comes up in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and these kind of things as, as people can be made unclean. And this comes up uh, by, by their encounters, I should say, with, with that which is 
people who are clean can become unclean with their encounters with that which is unclean. Uh, and you see this throughout Jesus' ministry uh, in, in, in the Gospels, uh, these times when uh, Jesus is encountering, even touching, uh, uh, in, in situations where he would be uh, I should say under normal circumstances, ordinarily a person, uh, an ordinary person would become unclean. That's a good way right. to put it. Uh, but here, when our Lord encounters this, it's exact opposite, right? He's not made unclean by this unclean spirit or unclean by being in the place of, of, of the tombs and of death, uh, which would regularly make a person, a regular person unclean. But here, our Lord enters into this and actually brings cleansing by driving out driving out that which is unclean the unclean spirit which again is that same kind of imagery uh, that which is held in opposition to god uh, to the holiness and cleanliness of god yeah i mean the whole the whole picture here is that jesus has entered into enemy territory and there's i mean and jesus is really he's standing alone here with uh, against this enemy territory. And I, I'm, I'm just, I'm, this is something I'm thinking about right now. Mm-hmm. Jesus has gone across the sea with his disciples. There were even other boats. Mark talks about that. We don't know what happened to the other boats. Mm-hmm. And we know that in verse one, they came to the other side of the sea. But from that moment, the disciples really fade into the background of this text. Mm-hmm. And it is Jesus who is standing alone there in this enemy territory, a light shining in the darkness. I, when I, when I tend to think about what maybe a way to picture this, I, I generally will often speak in sports terms. And so if you will indulge me for a moment it, in this part of the world, the, the rivalry is between the university of Texas Longhorns and the Texas A&M Aggies. And, and so we're Smithville is a little bit closer to Austin. And so, I mean, imagine, imagine, uh, an Aggie going into Austin and just being surrounded by burnt orange pictures of the Longhorn logo everywhere, people flashing the hook'em horn sign all over the place. All the Aggie can see is, is burnt orange. And right there in the middle of it is just one lone, one lone light of maroon or, <laughs> or reverse the picture for the Longhorn going to, to college station or pick your favorite sports rivalry. But the idea is that, that there is this one lone light in the middle of all this darkness. And and the question becomes, I mean, it's just a very, in terms of a narrative, it's a very striking way to begin a story mm-hmm. the, the conflict has been set and, and we're in anticipation of what's, what's going to happen. And of course, if we've been paying attention in the gospel of Mark, we should know what's going to happen, but I don't, I don't think we should miss that picture that this is what Jesus has come to do. He is coming to invade this enemy territory where Satan has usurped his rightful role and attempted to to lay stake upon us. And what is Jesus doing? He's come to bring the kingdom of God. You you read earlier Jesus opening preaching. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And what does that mean? This is what it looks like. Jesus entering into enemy territory and taking back what is rightfully his. It's just a it's a very dramatic scene. Yeah, it's very much so. Yeah, it, it's it's very interesting when we when we want to talk about this kingdom of God or this inbreaking of the kingdom of God or just um, defining and describing the kingdom of God. Uh, like when I do with my catechesis students and we're going through the Lord's prayer and we get to the second petition. So what is the kingdom of God? The best way to talk about the kingdom of God is to look at what our Lord does, right? And, and to look at what, 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 what his reign is all about throughout the entire gospels. Uh, and then also, you know, it's not simply what, 
what's going on back then, these marvelous things that our Lord was doing, but what he does now for us by, well, as we say in the small catechism, when our heavenly father gives us his Holy Spirit so that we, by faith, by his grace, believe this word, and then also lead those godly lives here in time and there in eternity. I think that's kind of neat to see the transfer of, of because this, 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 this battle is still going on, if you will, right? Uh, and, and in certain senses, the Christian, as a Christian, stands uh, in the midst of a dark, sinful world. And that contrast is, in vivid, is vividly painted even now, uh, where we don't go along with the, the necessarily with the, the cultures or the trends or the thinking of the world, but we stand as ones who are uh, truly enlightened by the gospel uh, and have been, uh, to bring up the analogy again, or the imagery again, plundered from the house of the devil. Uh, and so we don't belong to this kingdom of, of, of the world or the kingdom of Satan. We belong to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and and, and it, we will look different and we will stand against that. And we will, in fact, be be, be persecuted for for such things, uh, if not by the world, by by the devil himself, who who seeks again uh, uh, his will, running contrary to God's will, seeks to to take us to take our faith in Christ away from us. The way that you've tied this text to the proclamation of the kingdom of God, I think, is so helpful because it is very easy for us, I think, to see the kingdom of God or hear the kingdom of God in very amorphous terms in, in a very abstract way that, uh, yes, I'm a part of the kingdom of God. I'm a part of the church. Well, what does that actually look like mm-hmm. to be a part of the kingdom of God? That means that that what Jesus does for this man in this text, which we will read more of it on the other side of the break, what he does, that's what he's doing for you and for me. He is rescuing us from this. He's rescuing us from death. He's rescuing us from the one who would subdue us, the one who would cause us physical harm, the one who would cause us spiritual harm. That's what Jesus is doing for us in the kingdom of God. When his word is proclaimed in church, that's Jesus beating back the devil again. When he feeds you his body and his blood in the Holy Supper, that is Jesus beating back the devil again and holding on to you as his child, which I think is just a, I mean, if that doesn't get you excited about going to church, man, I, you know, I, I don't know what will to, to realize that that this is the kingdom of God. And that's what it means for Jesus to bring you into the kingdom of God is to rescue you from your worst enemy, to take you out of the worst possible enemy territory and bring you into his kingdom. And that that's a fantastic reality. And, and a text like this really helps us to put flesh and blood on it so that it's not some abstract term, but it's something that is actually happening. And man, that just fills us with joy. We're going to, we're going to keep talking about this on the other side of the break. Pastor Wargal, you're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, February 2nd. We're looking at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. We've got Pastor Sam Wergau with us. He serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, prior to the break, we looked at the opening scene. Jesus has entered into enemy territory, and now the scene continues, beginning in verse 6. Mark 5, verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Now, we'll pause there again, Pastor Wargal. So now we actually get some conversation. The man with the unclean spirit sees Jesus, and he confronts him, and the the posture that this man takes seems important. It is, and I'm not 100% sure what to make of it, so maybe you'll lend yourself a little bit more to this conversation too, because you read this, uh, and if you're reading um, uh, from the Greek, you see that this word for fell down before uh, is actually a, a word that's commonly used throughout Scripture to actually indicate worship, okay? So that I think that's really, this is a worship term. That, now, we know this is different with the unclean spirit. But, but it's really interesting, both with the dialogue and with the posture of this man, to see this interaction. Uh, it, you, you have a little bit of this, I think, in that the, the Mark 1 ep- episode of the unclean uh, spirit. Uh, but I think you have even more just kind of perplexing. It's just very interesting to look at this interaction and this dynamic, if I can use that term, between Jesus and the unclean. So so. So this word for uh, um, uh, to, to worship uh, is is the same one like the Magi in Matthew 2, for example. Uh, but throughout, you have people uh, falling down before Jesus in acknowledgement of his of his divinity, but actually uh, uh, in worship to him. I think that acknowledgement of the divinity, it really does tie in with the, with the unclean spirit, because you, you do have that here, even with his posture and with his confession. Uh, now, we'll see that this isn't the saving faith of the trust and the forgiveness of sins. Uh, this is what James talks about as, as uh, the kind of the, the uh, historic faith or understanding who God is, but not trusting in him for salvation. I think we'll get to that here in just a second. But, but, but he does have this, this, uh, this, this uh, posture of, of falling down, of worshiping. And I think what it re- primarily does uh, is that this action uh, really does show the unclean spirit is showing with the, his body or the body of the possessed man that who Jesus is, that he, he is, as we've said, the strong man. Uh, and he can't help but uh, shudder, fall down before the Lord, uh, but not the worship of saving faith. We'll make that a distinct thing because that's what we're going to see after the exorcism when, um, when the man now clean uh, follows Jesus. So... Mm-hmm. Right. I think the the posture indicates, as you said, a connection to Mark chapter one, where that unclean spirit there says, have you come to destroy us? That already the unclean spirit, having seen Jesus, knows who Jesus is and simply can't help but recognize that even in the posture that this this man that he's possessing takes. I'm reminded of the verse 
in Philippians chapter 2, which doesn't use the exact same verb in the Greek, but I think the picture is the same, that at the name of Jesus, in his exaltation, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, such that the demon here already, this unclean spirit, is is forced to bow before the one who is the stronger man. And again, not that he is worshiping him in the sense of any sort of saving faith, but that even with his might, because as we said, the unclean spirit does have strength, even that strength is not nearly enough to stand in front of the stronger man who is Jesus. So that happens in the posture. And then this unclean spirit begins to cry out with a loud voice. Some things that we've heard already in the first interaction Jesus had with an unclean spirit back in Mark 1, uh, some things that are a bit new. Take us into the the speech that the unclean spirit begins. Yeah. So he first says, uh, uh, what have you to do with me? Right. So what have you to do with me? Literally, uh, uh, this is this is actually, a, a, it's rendered in the Greek, but it actually comes from kind of a Hebrew turn of phrase, but literally it's kind of like, what is it to you and, and to me? And this is almost verbatim to that, to that Mark one, except for, um, this one's in the singular, uh, the Mark one was in the plural. But other than that, I mean, it's pretty pretty similar. What is it to you and me? I, I like how Dr. Vells, Jim Vells puts this, uh, that this is a matter of uh, when one party wants the other party to stop meddling in the in the affairs of the other, or, the, or somebody wants the part to stop meddling in my affairs, Jesus kind of thing. Yeah. What are you doing here? Uh, why are you getting into my business? <laughs> and we'll see why this, because, because, the reason why the unclean spirit says all these things is because Jesus has been saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. He's, he's exercising him in the midst of this. Right. And um, uh, so, so that, that's kind of the first thing, what are you doing in my affairs? But then this, this confession, this wonderful confession, if you will, to a certain extent, a uh, true confession, again, not in faith, but in fear. I know who you uh, or uh, who's have it. What do you have to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, uh, uh, son of the most high God, this confession of who Jesus is as, uh, as, as the son of God. I mean, this is like Peter's great confession, right? You are the Christ, the son of the, of, of God. This is, this is, this is a, the confession of right, true confession about who Jesus is. But again, this is, he knows what's coming. That's the key thing. He knows what this interaction with Jesus means for him because, uh, well, as the demon said earlier in Mark 1, have you, have you come to destroy us? Here is, don't torment me. Because he knows that's his, what are you doing in my affairs? That his kingdom stands in opposition to, to Christ's kingdom. And that um, he knows the end game. He knows, uh, uh, you know, Matthew eight twenty nine or what Revelation twenty ten talk about this, that it's inevitable that, that uh, Satan and, and all the unclean spirits will finally be um, uh, destroyed, uh, 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 done away with. And, and so why his, his point is, why, why have you come to do this? And then this is just fascinating when he says, I adjure you, uh, by God, do not torment me. So, so he actually to adjure is to put somebody under an oath, invoke authority. And it's almost kind of like this ironic, way of talking about it. Vels talks about it this way. Dr. Vels said for the unclean spirit, not under the reign and rule of God to try to pull this off with God himself is laughable, even as his plea not to be tortured, the very thing he was doing to that man who was within his power. So, so it's just, it's, it's, it's all, yeah. Vels says almost laughable that he would, that he would adjure uh, Christ by God to, uh, 
to not torment him, that he, in a sense, call upon God uh, to, to, to not... Um, to not do actually what our Lord had come to do in releasing the man from the unclean spirit. That last statement is loaded with tons of irony. Uh, Yeah. I mean, even the fact that the demon would just call upon God period, you know, not, not only that he would adjure Jesus by God, but the fact that he would adjure anyone by God's name is just, I mean, the one who is opposed himself to the things of God for his entire existence now tries to make use of that name for his benefit is, is just laughable and and terribly ironic. As you were talking about just that opening statement, you know, what, what are you doing on my turf, Jesus? Something like that, which as you said, was the way that the unclean spirit addressed Jesus back in Mark chapter one, just so that we don't lose sight of that setting again in Mark one for, for a demon to say to Jesus, what are you doing on my turf in a synagogue? Okay, come on. Of course, the synagogue, the place where God's word is heard, of course, that doesn't belong to the demon. And so Jesus casting him out there makes perfect sense. But now here is here's the demon saying the same thing in Gentile territory. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, one of the things and we put those two texts side by side, Gentile territory too belongs to Jesus. And although it's perhaps not full blown in this text, we're already beginning to see the fact that who has Jesus come to save? It is all people, Jew and Gentile alike, which, of course, is a huge theme in the rest of the New Testament. Um, feel free to comment on that further if you want, Pastor Wargal, but but let's. I want to make sure we keep moving through this text because there's so many nooks and crannies that we can find our way into it and really mine the depths. Jesus then, as you said, he's been saying to this man, come out, or to the unclean spirit, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Mm-hmm. Jesus does something that may seem a bit strange. He, he asks the, the spirit's name. What what's that about? Yeah, this is interesting. Um, and and Doctor Vels points this out too. And this comes not only from uh, 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 our Christian literature. Uh, this is kind of even held in some Greek literature and such. Is the idea that you you ask the name of the unclean spirit uh, is the attempt to determine the spirit's name was typical of uh, when conducting exorcisms. To, to it allows the exorcist to gain more control over the spirit to be expelled which I think is, is, is fascinating. I wonder if our Lord does it for a different reason, though, uh, uh, because obviously he, he's not vying for control over this, 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 uh, this unclean spirit. He, he's control over all creation, just as he you know, can speak the, to the winds and tell them to, to stop and to the sea to stop. So I, it's not that he, I don't think he asked the name because somehow he's, he's not he doesn't know it or he needs to, to do this to gain control. But I think it is the fact of the matter is, is that he is, he is um, uh, uh, declaring, if you will, his, his authority over, uh, over this unclean spirit, his authority. Uh, and then it's going to kind of tie into what we get to when, when, when that's named as, as Legion. Uh, and, and, um, and, and I think the naming of the spirit by our Lord actually causes uh, uh, you almost see a little bit of a shift here uh, in the narrative where after that name, the, the unclean spirit is no longer trying to negotiate or be ironic or, you know, trying to, I shouldn't say negotiate, trying to, you know, what are you doing on my turf kind of thing. It becomes much more, I almost hate to use the word, but I'll use it submissive, I guess. I guess that's okay. Submissive under, he knows that Christ is in control uh, and that, um, all he can do is try to negotiate to a certain extent. And then, and then how he goes about that, we'll see here panned out. 
Sure. And I mean, I, I think I understand your, your hesitation there as to how to describe it. But it, just in terms of the way the narrative is progressing, you do see sort of a an audacity of this demon at the beginning that is, is very quickly brought to nothing. And even in the way that Mark records this, you know, you've got the demon saying, I adjure you by God. But by the time you get to verse 10, now the unclean spirit is begging mm-hmm. Jesus. And, and so then it, it brings up this, again, rather, rather curious thing that the unclean spirit legion, this terribly strong unclean spirit is possessing this man doesn't want to go away and, and asks to go into pigs. There's some things here that I'm not sure that, that I'll ever quite fully grasp, but there's, there's some background here that I think is helpful. What can you give us? Yeah, I think part of it is, is this kind of this understanding that they're asking specifically, beg them earnestly not to send them out of the country. Uh, we often don't think of it this way, but I think scripture pretty clearly talks about this idea that uh, th- there's a locality to cleanliness and to uncleanliness, to, to, to holiness, there's holy places, and to unholiness. And, and, and I think we lose sight of that, especially in our modern context. So the idea is that they got their claim on this territory, this particular area um, uh, on the, the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, right? And there is also this sense that, that, that they are desiring that if they're going to leave this man, that they be back into something corporal, something bodily, and that would be the pigs. Now, Vels does note this, I think it's Vels, or or it could be another commentary I was looking at, uh, the short-sightedness of the demonic, of the unclean spirit, and wanting to go into the pigs. It's this idea that they they know they got it, they're not going to win against Jesus, so let's negotiate, let's go to the pigs, and that doesn't work out for them either. But demons are always working, kind of, the devil himself is always short-sighted. He's always kind of reacting. And I think you see this in, even in Mark 1 with kind of what's going on in that scene. It's like just there's not a long-term game plan here. They're not playing the long game. They're just trying to get by, again, because they know ultimately their time is limited and that that Christ is uh, Christ has come to, to, to torment, to kill, to, to, or to, to torment, to drive them out. And so it really, it, it does kind of tie into this idea that the demons know that their, that their time is short, uh, uh, that ultimately Christ does triumph and he will cast them out. So they're just looking, they're very short-sighted. They, this is what we're going to do. This, you know, send us to the pigs because that, that's, that's, that's what's going to keep us going. And their short-sightedness actually really does uh, end up to be their, their peril, if you will, because the pigs are not able to control these unclean spirits. Uh, this legion, uh, in the same way that the, the, they were able to occupy the the, the man, uh, and, and they're sent to the sea. Um, and again, this is the idea of the water of the sea, just as we saw our Lord in the boat, uh, is kind of this alien place, a place opposed to God, and there they're drowned. And I think you could also tie in some baptismal language with that, of course, as well. But um, uh, and so that's kind of their ultimate fate, uh, and that's the last we hear of it. We don't need to really imagine what happened to them. Fine. Whatever. Uh, they're gone now. The man is cured. Uh, the, un- the man who was possessed by the unclean spirits is back, uh, cleansed, sitting in his right mind. And now the episode kind of shifts to what we're going to have here. Real quick, before we read the rest, that short-sightedness of the demons, I think, is, is a fantastic point to make. And I-, I wonder if you see a little bit of that same short-sightedness of the devil 
when he's got Jesus on the cross and, and perhaps the thought that, you know, does, does Satan realize that when he's got Jesus on the cross, that he's going to actually defeat Satan right there. And, and, and it seems that, you know, perhaps Satan thought he won, but in fact, right. he didn't, you know, and, and really he should have known that. Of course, he heard the, he heard that promise in Genesis three. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there might be some of that short sightedness there as well. There, there's also that, that connection that we see in this text between the demonic and the sea. And we talked a little bit about this yesterday in the way that Jesus will rebuke the wind in chapter four. And he says, be still the same way that he will speak to a demon back in chapter one. And and this connection that's there, that chaos that seems somewhat inherent in the, the sea and the water that the, the demonic just kind of goes along with that somehow. And, and, and those connections there such that, Wherever the chaos may be, whether it's being caused by the demon himself or it's inherent in the fact that you know nature creation has fallen, is groaning, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, in either case, Jesus has authority over that to bring this calm, to bring his kingdom, as we, we said at the beginning. Any more thoughts on that before we look to the rest of the text? Yeah, uh, Dr. Vels does bring this up a little bit in his commentary. I think it was Dr. Vels I was reading on this, uh, and the idea of the connection of the sea, and then he ties it in with Revelation 21 in the new heavens and the new earth, and that kind of peculiar phrase, uh, which I don't think we often kind of pass over to say, Revelation 21.1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And, and I think this kind of see understanding the sea as this big picture of this place that um, resists gods, the place uh, that in the very last day will finally be no more, right? Will be excluded from that new creation. That is um, uh, the, uh, the, this place that opposes to God uh, will ultimately not be um, part of, of creation of the new creation. All right. So the rest of the text, we got about eight minutes here, Pastor Virgo. Mark 5, verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. But they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. That's the rest of the text. We're looking at Mark 5, 1 to 20. Pastor Wargau, now we get the aftermath of the actual casting out of the demon. The pigs go into the sea. The herdsmen flee. They begin to say what's happened. Uh, take us into the reactions that we see to what Jesus has done. Yeah, because I think what you see here is it's so intimately connected. What we've had is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in Jesus' um, interaction with the uh uh, the demonic, that which is opposed to God, now is our Lord in this this effect of how this affects and how Jesus now interacts with those who are witnesses to this, which really does tie it in for us, right? How do we receive Christ? How is this? How do, what do we think of this Jesus? And, and, and the reaction of the people is that they are, uh, when they hear about this report, uh, they're afraid. 
um, uh, they, they fear and, 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 and fearing in scripture can be a positive thing, uh, such as hold in awe. But here we see that this fear is not this kind of reverent fear or holding in all the mighty power of God, but it's actually a fear um, that uh, they want Jesus to leave. It's, their, their reaction is they is negative. Um, they're actually afraid. And and Vels talks about this point. Uh, we get kind of a dark and negative turn, if you will. Um, but but what we need to understand is that you're going to have these two things kind of diverge here. And this always happens in Jesus' ministry. Those who receive him and believe him and those who, for whatever reason, uh, reject him and, and do not want him to be present among them. And they ultimately get what they want, right? <laughs> Both sides actually get what they want. Uh, and um, so, so you have two beggings here. And I think it's point to kind of talk about this because well, we've actually had three in the whole pericope uh, in the whole section. We have the begging of the, of the, of the unclean spirits to be sent to the pigs, right? They, they implore, they beg. And then you have the begging after that happens of the uh, uh, people from this town that Jesus leave. So they're entreating, they're begging him to leave, um, which Vels picks up this point. This is, goes against a lot of the uh, accounts of exorcisms in the Greco-Roman world in accounts outside of scripture. Normally the person who does the exorcism is hailed. He's a hero. In the gospel of Mark, it's the opposite, right? He's not welcomed at this, but he's actually rejected because of his work. Uh, and then, uh, so it's kind of a strange picture that you have here, but then you also have the healed man begging to go with Jesus, begging to go with Jesus, to be, to be with him. And, and I did say that they both kind of get what they want. The, 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 the healed man doesn't go to be with Jesus. And we'll talk about here in just a second, but he does, uh, get, uh, uh, first of all, released from the unclean spirits and to then go about his vocation and his calling in life, all the while proclaiming um, what the Lord had done for him in then the Decapolis, the uh, the Ten Cities area, which is again south southeast of the Sea of Galilee. We talked a little bit about this yesterday at Mark chapter 4 at the very end where the disciples are afraid after Jesus calms the sea and how that great power that Jesus displays Fear is, is not an unexplainable reaction, in fact, very natural. And I think particular in this text, you consider what these people have seen. They know how powerful this unclean spirit was over this man, what he could cause that man to do. Here has someone who has power even over that, Jesus. What, what could he do? And, and if you don't know Jesus in his, in his death and resurrection for you, then that kind of raw power from Jesus would elicit a lot of fear. Uh, And so I think that's, you know, it's a very natural reaction from that perspective. Perhaps a bit ironic then is the fact that this, this man who had been possessed by the unclean spirit, he seems to, to get it now. I mean, not, not fully, no one fully gets it in Mark until the centurion sees Jesus die and confess him to be the son of God. But, but of all people, you know, the disciples were afraid in the text we looked at yesterday after Jesus called the sea, we've seen everybody else be afraid, but all of a sudden here's somebody, he wants to be with Jesus. Now Jesus doesn't let him. So we've got about three minutes here, Pastor Wargo. Help us to, what does Jesus, why does Jesus not let him be with him? What does he give him to do? Uh, wrap things us, wrap things up for us today. Yeah, I think, and I think this is a great way to wrap this up just right into a baptism, into our vocation, right? Um, and, and we can see how it relates to us. So, so the healed man wants to go and be with with Jesus. Now, now it might strike us kind of odd 
right? Because our Lord is always calling people to follow him, right? We're supposed to be followers of Christ. And, 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 and it seems like this would be a natural reaction. And when Jesus tells him not to, I think we have to go into that terminology, especially in kind of a particular thing, especially that term to be with him. Because uh, Mark previously used this in 314 when he's calling, specifically calling the apostles, that is the 12, right? That they would be with him. So I think that's a particular vocation that this this man uh, desires. And, and it's not necessarily that his desire is a bad thing, but our Lord has a different calling for him. Uh, and, and I think it's really important for us to point out that our Lord uh, uh, doesn't have him come along to be as the apostles are, but sends him to what would be even better for that man. And that is for him to go back to his calling in life, uh, to, to go and to proclaim uh, in the cities, uh, once again, return to the cities, what Jesus had done for him. Uh, uh, and that's exactly what he does. He goes out to, to, to speak uh, and, um, and to uh, speak about what this what this Lord had done, what this, what this Christ, what this Jesus had done for him. Uh, and again, like, I think it's really helpful to tie this in because, uh, of course, these aren't just isolated stories. These have to do with the whole, which we already talked about earlier on, the whole plan of salvation, the whole work of Christ then and now for us. And that is who we are as ones who have been called out of darkness, ones who have been cleansed, uh, uh, who the demons and the unclean have been driven out of us and we've been given instead that clean spirit, that right spirit, that new heart, that holy spirit, in which Peter talks about in Peter, 1 Peter 2.9, that it calls the Christians, the church, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This man doesn't get to go be an apostle. That's a specific calling and vocation that our Lord chooses those apostles to be in that position. Just as our callings are varied in life and various, but we're all called to that royal priesthood, that, that chosen that chosen race, that holy nation, for the purpose of, as the baptized children of God, to do just as that man who was cleansed, to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has cleansed us, uh, and who has conquered, and who has called us out of that reign and rule of the devil into the kingdom of God, his righteous reign of, of faith in our hearts. Pastor Sam Wergau is the pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Pastor Wergau, thanks for being our guest today. Oh, it's always great to be with you. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. If you have questions about this text or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, we would love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from our listeners on Sharper Iron. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you again tomorrow.